0: good afternoon. My name is Dan Kilbride. I'm the chair of the history department at John Carroll University. And I'm the host of New Books in American Studies. Every week or so, we take a book. Uh, it could be uh, history, literature, political science, sociology, whatever, and we talk to the author about it. Today, I am uh, very happy to be speaking with John... Good afternoon. My name is Dan Kilbride. I'm the chair of the History Department at John Carroll University. I'm the host of New Books in American Studies. Every week or so, we take a book. Uh, it could be uh, history, literature, political science, sociology, whatever. And we talk to the author about it. Today, I am uh, very happy to be speaking with John K. Thornton. He's a professor of history at Boston University, longtime professor at Millersville University in Pennsylvania, and we're going to talk to him about his new book, A Cultural History of the Atlantic World, 1250 to 1820, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, I have to admit that as an academic, you were all a little geeky, but I'm, uh, I'm very geeky and I'm very enthusiastic about this interview. Uh, a number of years ago, I attended a, a NEH seminar at the University of Virginia with Joe Miller. And I came across a book called Africa and Africans in the making of the Atlantic world, also written by John Thornton and uh, coming from a straight up American history background. This was my first exposure to the new field an exciting field of Atlantic history. And uh, I've used uh, Africa and Africans in class. I've read it for pleasure. It's one of my favorite history books, period. And so I'm very happy to be talking with John Thornton. So, John Thornton, welcome to New Books in American Studies.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, please give us a little background about yourself.
1: Well, okay. Um, I guess one of the first things I have to say about myself is I came from a military family, and so as a child, I moved around a lot, spent time in Europe as well as in the United States. Um, And I think that helped me to get, I don't want to say deculturated, but a little bit jarred loose from sort of parochialism (laughs) that we all suffer from uh, both because I I lived in foreign countries and also because um, I had to, you know, constantly meet new people, even as a child. I really think that created a sort of a cosmopolitan outlook for me. Um, I was also uh, fortunate that my mother was um, actually a classicist. And uh, so I would come home from school and meet her reading Suetonius, uh, you know, in her favorite chair (laughs) Uh, Which was another sort of a a funny thing about that, because my mom was also a. um, She was also a very, very diligent scholar. Interview. And she was when she was doing her Ph.D., I was actually a a teenager at the time. um, I was the only person in the family could type. And so I ended up having to type her papers. And I was just incredibly impressed with the degree to which she was really, really, really attentive to detail. Um, which, of course, classicists are. And also, because she was always working in another language, constantly aware of linguistic issues. And I think those things really guided me and helped me a lot in, in my scholarly work. Um, even at a work at, which is a broad scope work like the cultural history, um, if you read the footnotes, and you know this is the first thing I read when I see books, you'll see that I'm very attentive to language. I'm very attentive to who's saying what to whom and when this was published and all those kinds of things which maybe you don't expect to find in what looks like a textbook, but which is, I think, probably characteristic of my whole outlook as a historian. Um, I, I really sort of want to be a historian's historian with regards to things like documentation and getting, getting it right with regards to who's writing and what the most important texts to read are and so on. Um, so I think that's probably what I, what I brought to this whole thing from my childhood. Um, now, my interest in Africa was sort of strange in a way. I discovered... African history, Um, you know, really quite by accident. I I went into a a public library, I think, in Alexandria, Virginia, where I I lived for a while, and my dad was stationed in the Pentagon. And I found a book, um, an archaeology book. I was really fascinated by archaeology. My mom had taken some archaeology courses, and Mm -hmm. um, I remember her telling me about you know archaeology. And as a as a child, that just really you know grabbed me the idea you could digging in the backyard you could find something really interesting <laughs> uh, so so um i read that this book had one chapter on african archaeology and like most kids this was probably 1958 or something like that like most kids in those days i had no clue about anything about africa you know it was just totally outside mm-hmm. my world and and this particular book um we had talked about the ruins of great zimbabwe and dealt with them you know, the way they dealt with the other archaeological civilizations. And I, I was just really sort of mystified to discover that um, there was a history in Africa that I didn't know about. In fact, it was a continent I really didn't sort of recognize at all. Uh, and in any case, so I sort of I read that, and every so often I read another thing. If I came across something about Africa, I would, it, it led me to it. Um, and then sort of a strange thing happened to me, which was that... Um, When I was in high school, um, first of all, my first two years in high school, I went to an entirely segregated high school. It was uh, only Euro-Americans at that school. Hmm. Um, And we moved, as often happened. And I was in in an integrated high school. And I discovered that I could really run fast and leap really high. I could run like a deer and leap like a (laughs) flea. Um, And so I ended up on the track team. And from there, I met for the first time, African-American kids. Um, and what was interesting was, in this would have been in the mid-60s, about the only place where, where white and black kids could meet together in an atmosphere of mutual respect was in athletics or in music. And so that's how I got brought into Africa. And I remember one day, I mean, another little story about this, I could leap like a flea, as I said before. Um, in fact, I could touch the basketball rim with both my wrists without running at all. Um, Ooh, wow. and, but I weighed 125 pounds and <laughs> there were two parks. One was an all white park. The other was an all black park in the black park. Uh, the rulers of that park had declared that, that basketball was a non-contact sport. So I could play over the rim, um, in that park. And so I, <laughs> I have, I was a sort of a local legend in regard to that because, you know, they have this thing, white men can't <laughs> jump. And I could jump like a flea. Um, so anyway, one day I was, uh, but I never talked to these guys about stuff like African history or so on. You know, that was like another part of my life. But anyway, one day I was sitting on the hill with some guys and this girl passed by. She was a very attractive girl, but she was very dark skinned. And so they were making comments, as guys do, about girls like that. And one of the things they kept talking about is how dark she was and why this was a flaw in her beauty. And for whatever reason, I just started talking about Africa. And they were like, I, as I said, those guys that day commissioned me. Um, And so that's how I got started. I mean, it might might sound really strange, but so what I brought to this was sort of the passion that I had for that. And I I should ask also, I add also that in the course of traveling with track teams, um, I encountered a lot of sort of casual day to day racism that black people face all the time because I was frequently Mm. the only white guy in the group. Um, And I, I had one incident. I know I was going to the Pennsylvania relays with a group of guys and we could not get a place to stay. And so finally, these guys who were all in their 20s. And I was still 19 and my ears stuck out. They sent me in to get the room key. And guess what? I was the only person that was allowed in. And I, I mean, this was just like, so anyway, this sort of connected me with a passion for Africa. So I was probably going to be a historian. I was probably going to be the kind of historian I am. But my choice of subject matter was definitely conditioned by my experience with race and racism in my teenage years. And that's what really sort of drove me into African history. Once I got in it, though, to me, it was just another challenging branch of history. And I brought with it the idea that I was going to do history of Africa the way I would have done history of anywhere else. Um, And so that was sort of my signature with African history.
0: That's so interesting. Uh, Usually, in that initial question, I ask authors to tell us about the pathway that brought them to this book that we're discussing. Uh, I didn't do that because the story of how this book came to be written is so interesting, I think, that it deserves a question all to itself. So tell us about the genesis of this book at Millersville.
1: Well, okay, so um, basically the idea was in sort of the mid-'90s, they decided that they needed to have courses that were multidisciplinary and multiregional regional and because of my having authored African Africans, it seemed like a logical thing for me to address that as to propose a course in Atlantic history. I hadn't actually used that term yet, although I did use it in my course proposal. Um, and the idea that I had was that I wanted to sort of reshape the way we thought of our history as North Americans, now I'm speaking, away from the sort of uh, England's to America model that was often characterized history um, I think the way uh, we conceive our history, sort of do European history, and then we do American history as an outshoot of that. I wanted to really decenter that. And I wanted to bring in not just uh, Africans, of course, because that was my specialty, but also everybody involved in the process. So it meant all the indigenous people in the Americas. Uh, and it also meant the other parts of the American continent, because one of the other things that I thought was lacking in this whole process was. Um, we didn't hear about Latin America. I mean, Latin America is really a blank space in the American curriculum. Uh, So we don't know about uh, Latin America, but yet we live in societies in which people from the Caribbean and from South America and Central America are increasingly a part of everybody's life. We see them all the time on the streets. Mm -hmm. They do things for us. Um, And in my particular case, I'm married to a woman from the Caribbean, Linda Haywood. So um, I had a special sort of, you know, focus there too so the idea was to be both multi-regional and to um include all these different groups that come together in, in the process and I, I looked at this as a way of reframing the introduction to american history
0: mm-hmm. and so this book the genesis of this book was your class lectures is that right because there, there was no text that you could
1: really use yeah, exactly, right exactly so- yes that I mean, I didn't. I didn't literally record my lectures, but what I did was uh, I sort of floundered around for a couple years teaching it. Um, I had a heavy teaching schedule at Millersville, so as soon as I taught the same section two or even three times in the same day, so I got to really practice and repractice doing it. Um, and of course, you're, you're absolutely right. There just wasn't anything even vaguely close to being able to do what I wanted to do. But more than that, um, it was I couldn't even compile you know, like a chapter here and a chunk here and a stuff there that made sense um, as reading. Of course, I, I had reading lists for them to read, but it was very unsatisfactory. And there was a central core that was lacking. So I just wrote down what I was doing. Um, as I prepared my lectures, I, you know, I just kind of wrote it down. And then I distributed it as a free, almost a free publication. Um, in those days, they were still doing mimeograph. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then pretty soon it got to be where I had, you know, where Word files and so on. Um, And I just every year, as I modified this, as I did more research, I added more and more stuff to it. Uh, It became more and more complicated until eventually I started putting in footnotes. Um, Actually, that's kind of the turning point when you decide you're now going to have to actually provide a footnote (laughs) for what you're saying instead of pretending that you know what you're talking about. And that Changed the it, so what had happened was at first it was lecture notes and then gradually it was lecture notes with footnotes and then pretty then pretty soon it became a real academic publication which was now a reference point for the lectures rather than the lectures themselves mm-hmm. um, and that process just continued until um, I moved to to Boston University which now at a research one university rather than a regional university um, I sort of felt like I was obliged to do more and more that was scholarly in this in this process. It's the kind of thing that you really can't do if you're a junior scholar. You have to be sort of a senior person <laughs> to decide you're just going to do that kind of a book. And when I went to apply for grants to extend my sabbatical, the final sabbatical that I, uh, that I wrote the last draft in, um, I knew that I got turned down by everybody because they just thought I was doing a textbook. It was hard to describe a book with that scope and that length of time as anything other than a textbook. So
0: right.
1: um, that's kind of how that happened.
0: Now, you make a point uh, in your research of using the original language texts of your sources, your evidence, even when there are English translations available. Why do you do that?
1: Oh, well, first of all, this is obviously the influence of my mom. (laughs) I have to say that (laughs) right away. My mother, one of her most influential articles was one that she wrote on um, the use of uh, the word adolescence in Suetonius, when referring to um, uh, Nero. And she pointed out that many of the translations had been literal about the word adolescence and thought that meant teenager. But in fact, when you look at the semantic field of the word as it's represented in in other Latin texts, it's actually everybody up to the age 40. Um, (laughs) And so that really changed the way you looked at Nero. And that really stuck in my head as, you know, why you need to pay attention to what's there on the page in the original language. And I mean, let's face it. I'm not so great in languages that I don't use the English translations as a first pass. But if I see anything that sort of sticks in my head, something I think that really is good. And I, well, I want to use that or something that's troubling to me. Why is he saying that? That's when I'll go to the original. Um, and, you know, I, I'm more comfortable in the originals in uh, some languages than in others, but most of the romance languages, um, you know, it's fine for me at, reading in any Romance language is not a whole lot different from reading in English anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the Germanic language is not so much. German, okay. Dutch, okay. But then when you get the Swedish and Danish and those other ones, I'm really kind of out on a limb. Um, and Latin, even though my mom was good in Latin, I never was <laughs> that great in Latin. So, um, But I did, I mean, I, you look in the footnotes, you'll see I read Latin texts and I make, pay attention to what the words say. So um, you know that's there too. So that that was really part of it. And of course, the other part, which I have to mention, is the whole internet uh, transformation. Which yes, yep. ab- that was very interesting in your introduction. Absolutely transformed the way this book was done, um, and that had to do with the fact that when Google Books, actually it was Gallica, the, the National Library of France's website, that first started putting up um, whole books published in the seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century online that you could just download and of course you had to have high speed so there's two things the high speed internet capacity to download and mm-hmm. secondly the fact that these were being made available it made it so that rare books that you'd have to go to the library of congress to read or you know some other big library like that were now just boom you had them in no time and you could read them right there on your desk um, 19th century editions of texts which are now no longer circulating only found in rare books and so on those too. I could just get them. I, I remember downloading just, you know, endless um, books and then I would I would annotate them and you know I could really work with them. Yeah, yeah. So that meant that I could read primary sources in a much greater volume than ever before. And what that helped me do was it helped me find unifying threads because very often you get something that's really interesting from the historiography of one part of the Americas. And you say, wow, that's really interesting, but you can't necessarily apply it elsewhere because nobody else has tried it. So what I could do is just go straight to the original sources and see if I could make it work. So a lot of my uh, sort of comparative stuff is really based on an idea that I might have got from one part of the Americas applied somewhere else through the primary sources and then you know, mm-hmm. reading it like it's a uniform narrative. So that was um, that was the transformation. And I guess my... Uh, My best story about that is the the nature of the Internet research was that one day I was sitting. um, I did my sabbatical last year. I went over to the Harvard Du Bois Institute and they uh, they didn't have an office for me. So they parked me in a common use area. Um, And I was sitting there one day and I looked out at my desk and there was nothing on it except my computer. Nothing, no books, no papers, (laughs) nothing at all. And I remembered, for example, when I wrote African Africans, uh, which was in the late 80s and early 90s you could go to my workspace and there would be piles and piles of books and papers and notes everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was just gone. (laughs) The other thing is funny is that I, I took my sabbatical at the Du Bois Institute at Harvard precisely so I could consult Harvard's library. Um, And I had access to their library while I was there. And I went to the library like five times. I just, just, I just didn't, you know, I just didn't need to go. Um, because every time I needed something, I could find it online, and I could find it pretty quickly. And what's amazing to me is the way the Internet is right now. If you want to look at primary sources, it's wonderful for that. If you want to find secondary literature, it's not so good. <laughs> um, That's right. You know, so you can get lots of opinions and blogs and unreferenced statements and, and the very uneven kind of things that you meet in Wikipedia. But you can also... Um, And you can wade through that if you want to, but you can also just go straight to the primary sources. And, Mm -hmm. of course, if you've ever worked in in Spanish, the history of the Spanish Americas, um, Spain has millions, millions, literally millions of pages of unpublished archival materials that you can just read, um, write online or download, as I usually do. Um, And, you know, (laughs) it's just it's incredible what you can do with that kind of material.
0: Yeah, I know that in my, I just recently published a book on Americans who traveled abroad. And I know that I think Google Books saved me a year. Mm, okay. I pretty much shaved a year off of that project because uh, otherwise I had an interlibrary loan. I had papers everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But now these books were available. Did you ever feel like you were cheating when you were using the Internet? Like, this isn't real research? <laughs> uh,
1: well, no.
0: Because I got over that. I got over that real fast.
1: I, I did, too. Uh, to tell you the truth, it uh, initially it kind of felt like using Napster. <laughs> uh, and I was always a little guilty about using Napster, which didn't prevent me from doing it, by the way, but, um, and I did feel that way initially, and then I said, oh, you know, this is just too much not not to imbibe it. Yeah, I, I never felt too guilty, and certainly not cheating. I mean, primary sources are primary sources. That's what you've got. Yeah. Um,
0: you are a, a, one of the pioneers of the field of Atlantic history, but I think, unlike... Most historians of Atlantic history, you have pretty ambitious goals for what you see the field kind of uh, contributing to. What do you hope that Atlantic history might do to the way that the peoples of the Atlantic, maybe even especially Americans, understand themselves about their sort of, as you refer to it, as collective memory?
1: Yeah, I mean... Uh, that is sort of my objective, and I'm really hoping that I can impact on the collective memory, not just in the U.S. I, I wrote this book from the perspective of a North American. I wrote it with the perspective of the United States, um, and I always thought of my primary audit- audience as being North Americans. But I've done a lot of research and a lot of traveling in Latin America and the Caribbean, and I'm aware enough of what historians in those areas talk about with each other and when they talk about with me when I'm there, um, to know that they also suffer from, each in their own areas, uh, parochialisms of one kind or another. And, and in North America in particular, our parochialisms also play out in, in the way we interact with people who immigrate to this country. I mean, we have so many immigrants from so many places. Um, one Just the example I, I like to think about is, um, is Central Americans. Uh, Central Americans just don't figure at all in the American story. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe you'll hear about them in pre-Columbian times because of the Mayas, um, but after that they disappear completely. Uh, even though, if you know something about U.S. history, you know that the United States played, you know, uh, uh, the Caribbean, uh, the, the, the Central America was a part of sort of American ambitions in the 19th century. We had the filibusters and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. These are also chapters that aren't really recorded in our history, and yet. Um, Central Americans are such a large immigrant group and they're and they're so focused, not just anymore in, you know, big cities in the north or in, in agricultural areas, but you find them like all through the south. And um, and they are really sort of completely left out. And I know that, you know, uh, when I was teaching my class, I would have students in the class uh, who were Central American and they would come to me and they would say, you know, nobody ever taught me the history of my ancestors um. At all, I mean, you know, they they didn't get it, it. They didn't get it from their home training. Many times, their parents weren't very well educated. But even those who had educated parents didn't really give them much on that. And they didn't get it obviously in the American educational system. But here, they were getting it in this class. So um, it's funny that mm-hmm. I found that my Atlantic history class often attracted a lot of Latino students um, mm. who who did find in there something that they you know were pleased to find. And, What's funny is I don't. It's not a celebrational history, as you see when you read it. I'm not right. Celebrating any part of the Americas at all, but in fact, I think people just like seeing the kind of stories that you meet in European history and other parts of the world as well. Uh, we don't really write a celebrational European history; it's more problem-oriented, um, and I and I treat these areas as problem-oriented too. Uh, and that that seems to be something that they that people appreciate. That it's not trying to say, "Look, these people are great" or something like that. It's it's that. They're a part of the world's historical process. There are things that go on here which are interesting from a problematic point of view. Um, I think the way I dealt with, the, for example, the Spanish conquest, um, this is not something that I invented, but the idea that um, indigenous Americans played a huge role in the Spanish conquest and, in fact, made it possible, or that uh, Cortez's uh, expansion of Right. Of Mexico was actually the uh, Aztec conquest of areas they could never conquer before, and the same was true in Peru that areas were annexed to quote unquote the, in- the Inca Empire um, by joint Inca and Spanish armies of which the Incas were usually you know seventy percent of the soldiers um, and just recognizing that then they had to pay that they had to pay those guys back it just changes the way we look at Latin America i um I remember the 1992 Columbus Quincentenary. It was uh, my book, African Africans, was published in 1992. Um, And doing the run up to that, you know, I remember probably in the late 80s, uh, people were talking about how are we going to do the quincentennial of the Columbus voyages? And initially, of course, it was going to be the same story that we had before, sort of the triumph of Europeans coming in, you know, intrepidly taking over the Americas. Um, but very soon, the, the Columbus bashing crowd came in, and especially indigenous <laughs> Americans um, began talking about genocide. And that pretty soon became the driving force um, as to what, you know, how, how Columbus was going to be remembered. And I remember being quite annoyed by this because my thought was we were I was going to use Columbus to talk about people coming together, um, not necessarily always in friendly ways, but coming together nevertheless and creating this new American world. Um, So in some ways, the the germs of this of this book were created in uh, maybe four or five conferences or invited lectures that I went to um, between about 1989 and about 1993 or 94. We know when that whole Columbus thing was over. So I think the quincentennial probably influenced me. I wanted to get away from both the celebrational approach, but also the sort of um, Europeans as almighty and all terrible. (laughs) Um, in in looking at the way that history develops. Uh,
0: Can you explain uh, to our readers uh, who might not be familiar with, or not readers, but listeners, who might not be familiar with the concept of the Atlantic world, what do you mean by the Atlantic world? And can you just give a a short relation of how had it come together by the 17th century?
1: Okay, well, it turned out to be a lot more slippery than I thought it was going to be, because the the, my first thought, of course, was I said, OK, this is European expansion um, connecting first the African coast to Europe and then the African coast to America and then America to Europe and so on. And so I saw it as just that group of exchanges, that is to say, the Spanish conquests and then northern Europeans coming in and sort of trying to get themselves settled in the areas that the Spanish hadn't been able to get into. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's sort of the conventional story. The older Atlantic histories obviously tell that story. But the problem is, of course, is that when you get to Peru, you're no longer dealing with the Atlantic exactly except that (laughs) exports did go, um, you know, through a complicated route, um, either down to Buenos Aires or through Panama to one place or another. But, of course, also both Mexico and Peru were connected to the Philippines. And, again, this like, you know, when you read the original literature... Um, you don't really recognize until you look at, for example, Oviedo's history of the Spanish conquest, which was published in the 16th century, that the Philippines conquest is right there as a part of the whole thing. So I said, well, gee, is the Philippines also a part of the Atlantic? I I just can't (laughs) deal with that. And then, you know, as an Africanist, of course, I'd always been involved with the slave trade. and, And I knew very well that Madagascar had sent slaves to the Americas and the East African coast, not so much to North America, but certainly to Brazil. And to Jeez. Cuba. Um, so here we are in the Indian Ocean, um, and, and with people who are intimately connected to the, the at least the economic processes, but then also obviously the cultural practices going on in the Americas. Um, so and in fact I had a lot of problems with how to how to deal with that. Um, should I include, for example, the, the Dutch colonization of South Africa um, in this process when it was the South African colonization was really directed by the East India Company, and it was eastward-looking, not so much Atlantic-looking. On the other hand, of course, the Portuguese colonization of Angola and of Mozambique was westward-looking. So it was, you know, uh, (laughs) the boundaries got to be really tricky, and I I sort of finessed that in a way. I just sort of didn't deal with (laughs) with it very much um, because it's easy to make Atlantic history world history if you're not not careful. Yep. Um, And I think also by focusing a little bit more than most histories do on the cultural side of this, um, I could then really, the cultural issues were easier to deal with. Um, the Madagascar folks are sort of outliers in the process. You can ignore them. The Filipinos, they do come to um, you find Filipino and Chinese slaves, obviously, in Mexico and in Peru. But, you know, again, this is, not, this is not a main part of the cultural story, or at least not as I'm writing it right now. Um, so that's sort of how I brought this together. Um, I know that uh, while I called it a cultural history of the Atlantic world, about the first half of it is really sort of traditional political and economic history, um, which we might not think of as being all that cultural. And for that, for purposes of doing that, I, I needed to do some things. One of the things I needed to do was I needed to establish the relative independence or cultural independence of indigenous Americans. Um, by recognizing that the Spanish conquest was incomplete, even in areas where it was pretty much perceived as being total, for example, in Mexico. I was really conscious that the Tlaxcalans, who had helped Cortes conquer Mexico, were really independent um, throughout the entire colonial period. And uh, I was fascinated to see the correspondence of the, of the Cabildo, the, the, the city council in Tlaxcala, when Hidalgo's rebellion broke out in 1811 sort of immediately standing up and saying, look, we helped you conquer Spain and we'll help you defend it. We'll new Spain, and we'll help you defend it. Um, and it just brought home to me that that there were many places in the Americas in which in which indigenous people held great power. In Peru, the richest Peruvian families were in fact the lords of Cusco, who were the Inca descendants. They had been bought off by the Spanish with vast estates. Um, and so that that... I needed to do that because I needed to get away from the, the cultural idea that Europeans came in and imposed everything on. Them. So mm-hmm. when I got to the religion chapters, as you can see in this one, um, it isn't really about um, forcing people to become Christians. It's a much, much more complicated process than that. Uh, and I needed, again, to have that, those politics staked out so that we understood how that would work. Why there would be garrisons of Nahua-speaking soldiers in the Maya area who would put down rebellions on behalf of the Spanish crown in the 1770s, and how those Maya-speaking, those um, Nahua-speaking people from Mexico, their ancestors were from Mexico, would have their own sort of vision of uh, of religion that might be similar to or different from that of the Mayas with whom they were dealing, and that complexity again, I, you know, unfortunately in a in a book that, that takes on a large scale, I can't go wholeheartedly into the case studies. Mm -hmm. In this particular case I was really benefited from Matthew Rastell's work because he was he also was in the same sort of mode of thinking that I was, or rather I should say he influenced me as much as I would have had any impact on him (laughs) um, that we need to look at the indigenous Americans as much more in charge of their affairs than the model gave us to have. So again this was a, a necessary evil I guess to set up the cultural components was to get rid of that sort of or, or modify that political uh, background,
0: right? Uh, before you embark on the on the cultural uh, parts of the book, you kind of give a uh, I don't know if it's fair to call it a snapshot of both you know, Europe, uh, Native America, and Africa, but you don't sort of summarize those areas. You you really focus on you know the most important features of those three areas that really shape their contact with. Each other. What were do you do you think the most important aspects of those cultures that really shaped their encounter with each other? Mm.
1: Well, I, that's of course I didn't know how to how to tackle Europe. Well, let's just start with Europe. Um, what was I going to tell though the people about Europe that was important to me? And and I remember that I I began to realize that it was actually this struggle between Uh, the crown and powerful local nobilities who were militarily very powerful. And that in that struggle, control over income was important. Um, And that became sort of one of the themes for European um, uh, expansion was recognizing that the crown is looking for a specific type of revenue stream. Uh, And that, that that specific type of revenue stream allows it to do things like professional soldiers instead of relying on their aristocracies to fight their wars mm-hmm. uh, I can't. I can't. this argument is developed in more detail than I can give you here but that's sort of the way I wanted to go with it and that this led them to want for example to actually conquer and control rather than just trade if they could um, and that the conquest would be governed by rules that didn't allow the nobility to become independent um, they wanted to keep that out so nobles could go to the Americas if they wanted to but they couldn't get the privileges they had in Europe Um, And that was important in shaping specifically the way Europeans encountered Native Americans and the way they negotiated uh, the the, the settlements, uh, issues that they were dealing with. And then, of course, that eventually loops back on us, where the crisis in European finances in the 18th century, again, caused by military affairs, required them to basically press really hard on their American colonies to cough up more revenues, and that in turn led to the, the dissension that led to some of the American colonies being able to break free. Um, in fact one of my, my my the often repeated in many different words final exam questions was to get students to try to remember the linkage between why Europeans came out and why they got thrown out and how they connected with this, this stuff. <laughs> um, that was really the test of how well my class had done is if they picked up that that point. So when you read the European chapter, at least the one on European expansion, that's what you get. You get this sort of military fiscal state um, issues and how how war was financed and why the colonies were important um, to war efforts. Not necessarily everything else. Of course, when I go back and do, let's say, how, Europeans, uh, how European religion developed and how the Reformation was important um, in the spread of Christianity, then you have a whole other story of Europe that deals with, uh, specifically how religions change and, and that kind of thing that would then carry across the Atlantic and, and how they cope with non-European religions, how they deal with those and how the people practicing those religions deal with Christianity. Uh, so, you know, again, we have a different a different way that we look at the, at the two groups when you get to those sections. Uh, not so much uh, an issue with some of the more aesthetic things. Um, again, I wanted to get away from the idea of imposition in aesthetics, um, I can say that you know I just barely cracked the surface. I hoped that when, what I wrote about aesthetics would be inspirational to somebody who could do a better job than I. <laughs> I, I mean, I, mean, I do this a lot of times throughout this book. I, I recognize that um, what I'm really trying to do is, is to present enough solid, historically anchored evidence to make a case for something. And recognizing that people are going to pick away at it uh, argue with it, complain about it, but they'll make it better in the longer run. And maybe they wouldn't have gone the way they did if I hadn't, you know, thrown out something that that made sense. And I, I tried to, whenever I did throw something out that was kind of a departure, I wanted to do enough in the documentation to make people say, "Okay, I better pay attention to this."
0: Yeah, I think a, a non-specialist, a, you know, a non-professional historian, would pick up this book and, you know, there's a line in the introduction where he says something like, "You know, this is just the beginning. I'm just kind of." Putting some ideas out there, and somebody would look at the length of this book and say, "What? You know, <laughs> this isn't the final word." Uh, but you're right. It, there's there's a lot more to be done. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, historians and and casual observers typically assume that you know massive military superiority set Europeans apart from from both Africans and Native Americans. But you 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 do challenge that assumption. What do you have to say about the military balance between these three groups?
1: Oh, well, that's probably one of the one of the central discoveries, I guess you might say, of that book. I mean, again, I'm, it's not that I discovered it, but while well, people recognize that Native, Native Americans played a major role in the conquest, what I tried to do was to get at looking at it from a military history perspective, which is to say, um, you know, what does this particular weapon or weapon system contribute to warfare, and how does it work and you know it's funny i was inspired uh in this and again in 1992 by uh, a tv made for tv movie i saw about columbus i don't remember which of the several columbus movies it was but they had a scene where they had the spanish lined up on one side and it was just a spanish in the movie uh and the indians on the other side and there were maybe 15 spanish and there were maybe 100 indians I mean, it was a, you know, it was a huge difference mm-hmm. and and this is like so classic for a cowboy movie. So you see they're standing, maybe the, the camera would make you think they're standing maybe a hundred meters, 150 meters apart. And so the, the Indians began running toward the Spanish and the Spanish shoot their guns. and They're all carrying guns, of course. And I mean, it's massive casualties. You're saying, gosh, how, how could you possibly kill eight or nine people with one round, especially when they're standing next to each other. If they were standing in a line, you might be able to penetrate, but, um, and, and it was funny because you could see that the director of this scene and the actors themselves must have realized how absurd it was that this particular <laughs> maneuver could possibly have failed, that the Indians would have taken some casualties, but at the end of the day, they would have just overwhelmed the Spanish. Um, and so they had to stop, look around. Um, and then, of course, the, the, the ridiculous number of casualties that were inflicted by this round of, uh, of fire. And plus the Spanish got off three or four shots. and. I mean, I'm a I'm a pretty fast runner. Um, So but nevertheless, you know, even a person who's not very fast, they can cover 100 meters in, you know, 16 or 17 seconds. That's (laughs) and, and believe me, you can't reload an ag bus. I mean, these guys get one round of shot. That's it. And then they have to figure out how to deal with the people who are now on top of them. So anyway, I just said, okay, wait, let me just back up and say, okay how did this happen? And that's when I started going to the original sources. And it's funny because in the chronicle tradition where um, the activities of individual knights are often detailed. Like if you look at Spanish chronicles from the middle ages, they'll talk about a battle. Well, you know, there were thousands of soldiers engaged and yet they'll describe the activities of like 15 people. They'll name who they are. Sometimes they'll even name the, the sword strokes they laid on each other. Um, because that's kind of the way reportage was. It's like, Very few people reporting on football teams, for example, talk very much about what guards and tackles do. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's all about, you know, quarterbacks and so on. Um, And this was the sort of the same model, the the peones, the foot soldiers and so on. They don't really count in the battle very much. Um, And that's kind of the tradition they brought to the Americas. So people writing about military engagements. And let me just add that you might think this is strange, but there's very, very, very little detail on what happened in military engagements sometimes almost none at all. Um, So I really scratched and and scrounged to try to figure out how these battles were really waged. But the one thing I did get into was there was enough information to show that we had thousands and thousands of indigenous people and dozens and hundreds of Europeans Mm -hmm. that gave me sort of the idea of how this might have worked. And then I sort of looked wildly and see if I could find anything described well enough to do so. And I don't know if you noticed this little detail, but I found a, a very helpful one in Senza de León's um, description of the conquest of Peru where he describes an engagement in which um, I figured out the Spanish force engaged suffered um, about 25% of its members killed or seriously wounded and about 10% of the indigenous people were killed and wounded and part of the reasons the Spanish broke off the engagement was they were just exhausted. So I looked at the situation hmm. and I said, okay, okay. Um, a guy carrying a sword. um, And that's what they were carrying, either a sword or a lance. They weren't carrying automatic weapons. Uh, They weren't carrying multiple fire weapons. So they had to literally strike other people while armed. This is heavy stuff in order to kill them. And I said, nobody could kill more than 25 people before they became exhausted. Yeah. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, just these kind of things led me to, to, to recognize that and once, once I got that on it, then I, you know, it's amazing that the primary sources yielded up that information to me. Um, people who had read these things over and over again, I don't know, if their eyes had glazed over at the numbers or they didn't pay any attention to them <laughs> or what. Um, but every time I looked, I found again and again and again, yes, I could actually find quantitative numbers. So I talk about, for example, when Pizarro is passing into Cusco, he's gaining thousands of soldiers, thousands of soldiers as he goes who are fighting on his side. Um And then, as as they've taken Cusco, they're they're moving out into the country to pursue the Inca generals, Quisquis, for example. Um, And again, they're taking thousands of Incas. These are you know these are hardened professional soldiers and you know uh, fifty horsemen. Uh, So anyway, I I don't want to go on and on about this, but (laughs) just sort of using that imagination of how that and that one film's attempt to do it. I think that's one of the great things about. Uh, imaginary works like that, especially film works, is that you actually have to figure out how things happen when the sources don't tell you. Mm, that's right.
0: Uh, it, it's also the case that uh, uh, people tend to assume that the, the normative relationship between Europeans and Native Americans in particular was one of conquest, Europeans conquering uh, Indians. But you uh, do, uh, document that, you know. It, both in terms of Europeans and Native Americans and Europeans and Africans, contact and not conquest was in many ways the normative relationship and often on a more or less egalitarian basis. Mm.
1: How did those relationships work? Well, um, yeah, this is another discovery. I remember realizing at some point that the Spanish only conquered about 15% of Central America, for example. And all the rest of Central America, they literally never brought under their control. And in fact, um, the Central American coast was to the Spanish, in many respects, what the North American continent was to, nor- to, to English and, and French uh, people, which was that it was mostly in the hands of indigenous people, even at the time of independence. And that, in fact, it's the 19th century when many of these areas were brought under outside control. Um, what was even more surprising to me was that um, uh, an area like Veragua in, in the coast of Panama was a gold producing region and the Spanish really wanted that place and they just couldn't conquer it. They just couldn't do it. Um, they were defeated. They went and they started mining operations. They were, they were hacked up. They came back a few years later, tried again, hacked up. Um, and I was, um, I always sort of been under the impression that the reason that they didn't conquer this place or that place was because they didn't have anything they really wanted anyway. And they weren't going to bother with it, but that really wasn't the case. Um, And so they did have to learn to coexist with people. Um, And, of course, this was really true in Africa. That's where I knew it from the first point was they were defeated very early on in attempts to literally land Marines on the African coast. I mean, it's surprising to me how many people think that the slave trade was about Europeans landing Marines and capturing people. Um, And obviously that (laughs) when you even begin to think about that, you realize that that's impossible. You know, the size of ships and the number of people they could carry and uh, all that stuff. Just the marine theory wasn't going to work. And, of course, the primary sources don't support it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you realized that they couldn't do it, they tried. All right. I mean, this was this sure, they wanted yeah. to do, but they just couldn't do it. And then they settled down. OK, well, if we can't get it that way, we'll do what we can. And and they created a commercial relationships with Africans. And pretty soon that worked very smoothly for them. Uh, this happened many more times in the Americas than people are aware of, uh, in part because, I mean, you know, historians are stuck with documents and, in those areas like the or, um, or other parts that the Spanish didn't conquer, we don't know much about them because after a while the Spanish don't even write about them. Yeah. And therefore we don't hear them. You just sort of, there's are sort of blank spaces on the map.
0: <clears throat> now, In terms of cultural exchange, you observe that, um, Not all elements of culture are created equal. Mm. Some features of culture are more uh, malleable, more transferable, flexible than others. Where does language fit into that spectrum? And how did Atlantic peoples accommodate linguistic uh, conflict?
1: Yes, well, I have to say that one of the things I do when I approach culture is I divide them into hard, medium, and soft. Mm -hmm. Um, for better or for worse, which is that hard culture, hard elements of culture uh, don't change very much at all. And when they do change, it tends to be by breaking. Um, So you can liken that to like really hardened steel, which, you know, is great for cutting certain ways. But if you my example is if you take a knife, uh, a sharp knife, you can easily sort of cut meat with it. But if you try hacking the ice in your refrigerator, I know this from experience, it'll break. (laughs) okay so um that was my that was my uh, college version of defrosting the fridge um so the idea was and this was true with language is that because language is a system it has to be to be native acquired you really have to do it before you're 12 or so it's a huge system of complex connections and while we can certainly learn other languages and be able to communicate in them and i know that very well um native proficiency really eludes us beyond that point so You're in a situation where it's really difficult for. I mean, I can't remember how many times I've read about uh, Europeans stripping Africans of their languages, for example. Well, you can't strip somebody of their language. I mean, even if you wanted to do it, you couldn't do it because Mm -hmm. you can't, you have to give them something to talk to each other in. And if you want them to learn your language, you have to teach them. And nobody wants to spend the resources to teach somebody how to speak their language. So they work on, you know, solutions to get around that problem. Um, And so, uh, the point is, is that is that my contention is that there's sort of the, the three generation change of language, which anybody who lives in an area with immigration is very much aware of. The, the parents come across, they they learn some English uh, enough to get around, and their kids become bilingual, so they can speak to mom and dad at home, and because they hear the language at home, mm-hmm. um, and of course they have to they have to connect with the outside world, and since they're children, they learn that as a native language, and in the third generation, they don't really bother to have to deal with talking to grandma, and they become completely (laughs) fluent in the target language. Now, of course, that's not always the way it works, but um, it's a way of getting at it. And um, I was sort of fascinated by things like uh, having taught at Millersville University for 17 years, I was well aware that there were native speakers of German living in the vicinity of Lancaster, Pennsylvania whose 18th century ancestors also spoke German, and that they were preserving German as a second language for religious reasons, obviously, and because they they wanted to set themselves apart. Um, And I thought that was very interesting, considering that other German-speaking people who came to other parts of the Americas, you know, had abandoned German by the second or third generation, for sure. Um, And so that sort of got me in thinking about how language change took place. And I was really curious about African languages, again, because this was my my particular field. And and in spite of what uh, people have said, African languages really, really did disappear very quickly um, once we had self-sustaining African-descended populations. Uh, One of the reasons that you find African languages surviving is because there was a constant influx of new Africans speaking these languages, so you always had native speakers in the community. Mm -hmm. Once that stopped... um, then the, the languages really disappear very, very rapidly. And of course, part of that is because, um, except in a few places, Africans lived in multilingual communities even within their own community. Um, going through estate inventories, I quickly realized that many in, in the West Indies, for example, most estates the there were four or five African languages at the absolute minimum uh, being spoken on that community. And while it's probably true that um, native speakers of an African language would preserve the language to speak to other native speakers in the community, and many times, if we know about their marriage choices, they did choose people who spoke their same language. Um, the children were almost instantly exposed to multilingual setting, and the obvious choice for them was to take the colonial language mm-hmm. as the next one to learn. Um, so I didn't see this as as exactly cultural genocide in the sense that to try to suppress Africans, took the natural course of Disappearing on their own because the speakers made those choices, not individually, but intergenerationally. Um, and the if you look at the impact of African languages on the Americas, it's typically in, in, um, it's in vocabulary items. And it's in vocabulary items relating to uh, items of the universe that are particularly associated with those people. So something like Dumbo, for example, mm-hmm. um, which is a Central African word for okra. Um you know that word's going to survive as long as people are using gumbo and making okra um, and since my mom cooked a lot from new Orleans, i <laughs> I was exposed to that very early in in life um, so that that's typically where you meet it this is special vocabulary some some items of religious vocabulary and many items of cuisine might pass in but but basically um, most of the other items of the language are, are gone uh, it just doesn't really make sense to for that generation is going to learn the new language as children yeah they don't they don't have to preserve the old language and they and they don't uh, if parents want to push kids you know you meet people who are three or four or five generations um, speaking a minority language and or bilingual um it's there's some there's something that pushes them to do that that's not just normal life it's often religious beliefs that that make them do that
0: mm-hmm. now as opposed to language which uh, as you said, you categorize as, uh, as hard. Uh, you describe uh, you know, aesthetic forms of culture like clothing styles, art, and music as, as soft. Right. Why were they more soft than language?
1: Well, because it's, <laughs> that's, that was, uh, this is to me was, uh, let me just say that I'm exploring this idea theoretically. I developed a sort of the theory <laughs> of how it might work. Um, And produce, as again, I hope enough evidence to make people take it seriously uh, as to how that happened. And so one of the things I I point out is that um, the average consumer of aesthetic products doesn't have to learn a whole vocabulary to be able to participate in the consumption. And that so many works of, of art, whether that's musical art or visual art, are actually produced by a relatively small number of people who are specialists, as it were. Um, that you can have this this uh, potential for preservation and change in that um, I can learn to appreciate the music of India by just going to India and listening to the music and coming to like it. Um, I don't have to learn how to play it, you know, so that's what, I, that's what I'm getting at. And, and and one of the reasons I chose music as the thing I wanted to highlight was it was, it was easier to deal with um, just from a source material point of view. Even though I couldn't hear the music, I knew you know, sort of enough about it to be able to figure out what's going on. Um, and what I saw in music, I, what interested me in music was obviously that uh, African music has been so influential in the Americas and it's independent of demography, um, which I thought was really interesting. Um, you might have thought that the aesthetic culture of the majority of the population would prevail. And in a place like North America, African music has been extremely influential in our musical culture. And yet African descended people are only 10-12% of the population depending on where you are so why did this group that was relatively small have this large impact and why is it that the music of barbados let's say is not significantly more african than the music of north america or even the music of chile where you know the indigenous the african descended population is really small um, and so i had to sort of that, that was my that was my starting point to figure out how to do this and and what i concluded was that was that um, even in very simple societies, uh, musicians, there tend to be a category of people who are musicians. And one of the ways, again, I learned this when my daughter was learning how to play violin. <clears throat> and I realized that not everybody can master an instrument. Um, and I had many a night where I listened to practice on the violin that was um, not terribly unlike a cat fight. And she was a diligent child she really worked at it and she just wasn't any good i (laughs) I shouldn't say that but (laughs) but, you know so so i realized and then at the same time there was this other kid that she was taking lessons with and this guy you know he could pick up anything and he sounded professional practically the day he touched it um and so i realized that, that this idea of virtuosity that that there are some people who just have music in them and that even from ancient times those people were the ones that made music for the community uh, and that music has, while it may very well be that the popularity of music is sort of spontaneous and people like it, there's this dialogue between the, <clears throat> the skilled player, as it were, the skilled composer, and their audience. And that that dialogue happens cross-culturally, cross-class, and everything else. <clears throat> and this solved for me the the African music problem, and then I tried applying it elsewhere. So for me, what I understood was that here's a guy who's a skilled musician in Africa. He knows how to play music. He knows how to do the things that African musicians do. He's in, he finds himself in the American. He's a slave. So he knows the one thing that's going to get him out of that is, you know, I'm going to play music and somebody's going to like it. And he has a very, very strong incentive to make his music as, as attractive <laughs> to as many people as he can. And the one thing mm-hmm. he really, really wants to do is to make it attractive to a multiple group of African nationalities whose musical cultures may be different and the master. And I think that's what that pressure, that huge pressure uh, on on this group of musicians to find a musical tradition that would please the masters and please the slaves, with their multiplicity of African musical styles, um, may explain why African descended music is so popular worldwide. Um, I just I still remember my, my one of my sister's husbands. Um, traveled across Afghanistan in the 1960s, and he was in the middle of Afghanistan, and there was like nothing around him. And he heard Ray Charles being played on somebody's gramophone. <laughs> and you know, I mean, that's that's the power of African descended music. Is that you know, it was just an Afghan who heard Ray Charles somewhere and had acquired one record, and apparently he played that record all the time. <laughs> so well, you can do worse. Yeah, <laughs> well, I suppose. <laughs> But in any case, I mean, I think that those were the kind of questions I was wrestling with. And, and goodness knows um, when we get people who know much more about music than I do, I mean, I, I like to say the only instrument I play is the radio, um, is that um, people will maybe take that idea and see what they can do with it. I tried to do it with indigenous music as well and realized that I was kind of over my head. Um, but I wanted to get it out there and see what people thought.
0: Okay. Uh- in, in your final chapter, you observe that you know, the European possession of the Americas practically ended as quickly as it had begun uh, you know, in, the, in the various revolutionary movements. Uh, you tend to stress the differences between those revolutions, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what you do, stressing the differences more than the commonalities. Is that fair?
1: Well, I don't know. I think what I will say is I think there was a common, a common complaint um, that runs throughout the Americas. And I, I talk about that as the revolutionary moment. Uh, and I link it, as as you know, from um, what I was just saying, I link it to this pressure for revenue that resulted from the European wars of the 18th century and their really desperate need to crank every ounce of revenue they could out of their colonies. And they started reorganizing them to do that. And that had a pushback effect. Now, what, what makes them different, though, is that... Um, on the American side of things, uh, people didn't have the resources to just throw out the Europeans. So they ended up having to do various kinds of cooperative things with indigenous people and with enslaved people. And uh, this meant that they had to make alliances with folks with whom they didn't necessarily have friendly relations of one way or another. And here, it really depends on what kind of mix, mix of folks getting together had created the colony. So in North America, it tended to be uh, pretty much an issue of whether the indigenous people lying beyond the frontier could be recruited or should be recruited into this war and how. And secondly, of course, how um, how the slaves should be, should be brought in. And as we know, both sides played both games during the revolution to try to mm-hmm. re- incorporate um, those people, either by just getting them to run away, as they often happened in Um, in the south or actually bringing them in as armed as armed participants which happens sometimes in the north when you get outside the united states of course it's quite different Um, if you take a look at uh, what happens in mexico and peru um, there you have situations where there's where the original bargain struck in the 16th century is fraying and wearing apart and all of a sudden indigenous people are saying, wait a minute, you know, we made this arrangement with you and you guys are pressing against our arrangement. So the Tupac Amaru rebellion in, in mm-hmm. Peru is an example of that happening. And Tupac Amaru failed uh, in the sense that it didn't restore the Inca Empire, but um, <clears throat> it also created this very, very strong um, anti-indigenous sentiment within the Spanish segment of that society that made it very difficult for Peru to participate when the revolution uh, came again in in the 19th century, um, precisely because that Mexico didn't have quite that same experience. And likewise, again, the difference between Mexico and Peru had a lot to do with, um, in in Peru, cooperation was at the center of of Inca society, and it was the lords of Cusco who were the sort of holders of, uh, of Inca power within the Spanish world. In Mexico, it was like separate territories, Flash Gala, for example, or Mm -hmm, that that were the cooperative groups. Um, And those groups stood by the crown um, in a way that they hadn't stood by the crown in Peru. So those were the kind of things I was playing around with. And again, a lot of this stuff, I it's it's kind of original to me, at least as far as I know. So (laughs) I don't know how people are going to respond who know more about it than I do. And uh, I spent a lot of time scrounging around trying to get at the primary sources um, for those that period. And it was much harder for me to do so. Um, the um, the local uh, archives of the individual American countries are not online yet. <laughs> mm. And the Spanish archives don't help much because they're it's not their uh, documents that are helping us. So. Mm. You know, I had, um, I had some documentary collections, which I tried to use for the Mexican one. Uh, Peru was much harder to do. And again, it was I realized I could have easily written a whole book about this. And of course, everybody could write a whole book, not just about that, but you know, <laughs> about individual countries. Um, and I have to say that I, right. I found that chapter really difficult to write. I wanted, again, to make enough points um, and to present the perspective I had, which I recognize as not being the same as everybody else's, and see how people respond to it and hopefully giving enough primary information that they, have, they feel that they have to at least pay attention to it.
0: Well, John, we've uh, taken up an hour of your life, which you're never going to get back. Uh, so the, the final question I want to ask you, and I, I know this might sound kind of perverse since you've just cranked out this long book that, that you spent years on, but so what do you do for an encore? What's, what's next for you?
1: Oh, I don't know what the next thing is. Um, probably not a project like that one. Um, I, I feel a debt to the Kingdom of Congo, um, which is to say the Kingdom of Congo was my first historical project. At my mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thesis. Um, and over the course of uh, 35 years since I finished that thesis, I've continued to compile information about Congo. I've written a couple um, books about it. I wrote one, one other complete book on, on the Kingdom of Congo. Um and I reckon, I mean, I'm realizing that in that there's not many people that are doing sort of frontline research on these topics. So I might really find myself going back and saying, okay, let me, you know, let me do a Congo book or something dealing with Congo, again, covering more territory or different territory than I did the first time, just because I'm not seeing anybody else doing it. And I have, I have a lot of material and I have a lot of skills that i Built up over a long period of time, and I had to use. I mean, the Kingdom of Congo was very demanding linguistically, um, and you know, I, I've I've acquired working knowledges of those languages and, and the paleographies of the texts, and and I know the texts. I've read them over and over again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so you know, I'm feeling like I might do that, but I'm not going to promise that. Um,
0: yeah, you, you deserve a break. Uh, I think you've earned it. Uh, Well, John Thornton, uh, thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: Why? You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.
0: All right, great. So this is Dan Kilbride signing off from New Books in American Studies. The book we've been talking about today is John K. Thornton's Cultural History of the Atlantic World. When you go on the New Books site uh, and you download this interview, you'll see a link there to the Amazon page. Go ahead and buy it and read it. You'll enjoy it. Once again, this is Dan Kilbride signing off. So long.